welcome to Stories from A to Z with Mona P. I'm your host, Mona Pasanoff. If you are new, you can learn more about me and my process of starting this podcast by listening to episode one. As always, I work to improve the quality of what you hear. Today's show features Bertha Siegel Cook. Bertie, as she is known to friends and family, is here to share her proud Yiddish and Jewish background. What is Yiddish, you ask? Come along and listen and learn as she shares her knowledge of language acquisition versus formal language learning through the use of her native tongue, Yiddish. Another non-agenarian, Bertie talks about her life's work as she educated adult learners teaching second language students around the world. Her stories reflect a long and seasoned life. And full disclosure, Bertie is also my aunt. Welcome to my podcast. Hello, how are you, dear? <laughs> Very well. I'm so glad that we can do this today. I would like you to tell us a little bit about yourself, where you were brought up, an interesting story about growing up, maybe? I was born to two immigrants. They met and married in Chicago, and I was born in Chicago. But since my father had no family from his side of the family here, he decided to take us to Russia to show, because now he had a wife and I was the first child. So he took us to Russia when I was old enough to travel, when I was six months old. Once he was in Russia, and he was there to help out his parents because his parents were still in considerable poverty. And he was at some small cafe with some friends. And somebody asked him, well, how do you feel about how things are after the revolution? And thinking that he would speak confidentially, he said, I don't see much difference between before the revolution and after the revolution. Well, he was reported. I don't know whether it was a friend or maybe somebody at a nearby table. In any case, the result was we couldn't get out. Instead of being there for the expected period of six months, we were there till I was four and a half years old. And my parents did something very wise since they were doing this surreptitiously. They made a point of not speaking to me in Russian because they wanted to make sure in case, if they talked, if they spoke to me in Russian, any child, any normal child being in a country for four years is going to acquire that language. They decided to speak to me only in Yiddish. So the only things that I know how to say in Russian are which means I don't understand. <laughs> And then a few words like very pretty, very good, that sort of thing. I don't really know exactly because my father really didn't want to talk. He could talk about anything, but not about this. I do remember we were living at his parents' home, which is in Feodosia, which is near Odessa, which is a port city. And there was a boat. And I started to chat with my mother and my mother said, Now's the time to be quiet. And I understood by the way she said it, this was serious. So I never said a word. And that's all I remember 
until we were in Ellis Island. So that's how we got here. And I was by that time four and a half. And we moved to Chicago because my father's boss had said that if he came back after being in Russia, he would have a job. This was very important because this was depression. It was a worldwide depression. So since he had a job, we moved to Chicago and lived in the lowest socioeconomic class in all of Chicago. So we were a group of many, many immigrants. By the way, at that time, the United States was very interested in getting, getting immigrants. They needed immigrants to work in the factories. And of course, they needed the immigrants because they would work at lower wages. That's exactly what happened. That's a long answer to a short question. Thank you for that, because I forgot about that you had lived there for so long. I did quite well in school. And within a, another year, I could speak in English, not perfectly, but I could communicate and I understood a great deal. And one of the reasons I did that well, because I think we really ought to give credit to where credit is due. My parents gave me a very strong background and base in Yiddish. And any good language teacher knows the stronger you are in your first language, the faster you get the next one. So I got language very quickly and I did well in school. And I also had a marvelous first uh, kindergarten and first grade teachers. So I'm very, very grateful to that. Excellent. That's a great segue. For today, I'd really like to focus on your Yiddish education and the use of it for teaching because people listening may not know what Yiddish is. Can you give yes. a short explanation of it? and where it came from. Surely, okay. Yiddish actually is based on 15th century German. And remember there were a great number of Jewish people in Germany before the Holocaust. So it is really quite similar to German. I'll just tell you briefly that when I went traveling into Czechoslovakia, into Hungary, and into Poland, I don't know any of those languages, but I would communicate with the people because all of them had been dominated by the Germans during the war. And the result was they spoke to me in German, I answered them in Yiddish, we got along fine. But now why do I use it? That's why it's very easy. I don't understand it perfectly but I can communicate. I can't attend a very high level lecture in German, but I can certainly do basic communication because the words are so similar. I got my master's. One of the main learnings that I had was I attended a lecture by Dr. James J. Asher, who's a professor of psychology, California State University at San Jose. And he showed me what language acquisition was in comparison to formal language learning. Formal language learning is generally what happens in school. Language acquisition is what happens when parents first teach the first language to children. What Asher was suggesting, why don't we use, because parents all over the world, whether they got a college education or not, they all manage to teach their kids to speak and understand. Yet when those same kids go to school for a foreign language, they all think they're poor in language because they generally fail. And I mean, that's, that's I, I know more educated people who have failed the second language 
but who did very well in the first. I just fell in love with Asher's ideas and then did my master's in education with an emphasis on language teaching. And I figured, he said, what we should do is go back to the way we teach first language. So when I was teaching groups of teachers, then I would create another language and the language that I speak because it's my first language was Yiddish. So I used that as the shock language to teach them what acquisition is all about. I would give them just a little bit of research because you have to have some research. But then I went straight and I said, now I'm going to show you what happens when you teach it this way. I'm going to teach you a totally new language. How many of you know the language of Yiddish? Nobody raised their hands. Not even a couple of Jewish teachers there. Very, very few people speak Yiddish. It was marvelous. So I gave about 10 minutes of research. So they knew I knew what I was talking about. And then I went ahead and started teaching them Yiddish using the assigned method. In other words, stand up and sit down and turn around and run. And I showed them with my actions and had them follow me with my actions, which is really what we teach little babies to do. Most teachers at that time resisted it. They thought that this was only for how to teach babies. In fact, the first people who heard Dr. Asher speak were a group of Spanish-speaking teachers. Uh, they said, you can't do that with secondary teachers. This is just for little kids. And my response was, listen, even if you have a master's degree in the new language, which you don't know, you're a little kid. And any good teacher teaches at the level of language development. Well, anyway, there was resistance in the school district. So I got a job because I was known by that time that I was, I was able to get people to teach language this way. Not university teachers, but definitely elementary teachers. So I would teach them Yiddish, the acquisition way, the way they learned their basic language from their parents. And they were thrilled to pieces. And then just as a conscious, I said, well, now let me do with you. Now that you know that you're smart, there's nothing wrong with you. And you're very capable of learning another language. Then I'm going to use your methods to teach you a little more of the Yiddish. And then I gave them their methods. And of course, they failed totally. And the excuses that they used before when the little Hispanic kids could not get what they would try to teach. The general excuse was their culture doesn't value education. So I said, how come you're not getting this? Didn't your parents value education? I just used the same excuses right on them. Or you're not capable of learning another language. You sure learn it the other way. I think that's again, a long answer to a short question. So it worked very nicely and it enabled me to go from doing it on the district level, then to the county level, and then the Bureau of Education and Research hired me to go across up and down California. And since that worked, it went to Texas, then to Chicago, then to New York, and that's it. Thank you for that. And then you also went out of the country to teach. Yes. What did you enjoy most about this work? One of the things that I enjoyed was, you know, 
people are really very sweet. Generally, you know, there are very few of them that are out to make your life miserable. There were a couple of uh, instances where, like, when I went to train Eskimos, I taught them up in Alaska, and I taught them up in northern Canada. They had no problem when I get used Yiddish as the language, and they responded very, very well. But it was very interesting. The first day, they were very careful until by the afternoon they could see they were having a good time with us. It was fun with jumping and standing. And they were, of course, getting it. But one of the comments was that, you know, we learned a lot and she's a lot of fun. And you know what? She's a nice person, even though she's white. People have different prejudices. In Texas, there were a couple of cities that were concerned about my, my being Jewish. I figured, well, that's their problem, but I can teach them how to teach language. Remember when we went to Mackinac City on that ship? It was a museum, and the man somehow oh my goodness. to talk, and he <laughs> knew your technique. He knew of you. Remember that? Yes, that was a shock. <laughs> yeah. You are world-renowned. If you had it to do over, what would you do differently? I'm not sure that I would do it differently, but I sure gave it quite a bit of thought. I did, aside from Finland, where I did most of my workshop, I did about 11 of them altogether over the years. But Holland was another country, and interestingly enough, the Catholic Church. And the, the chief father there was named Jan Paul Moyesman, and he brought me back several times. And I taught the teachers how to teach a foreign language several times. And then he made me the offer. He says, look, you come for four days and they get all worked up and then you're gone until six months later. They've lost some of it. What I really need for you is to come work for us for two, three years. You can live here without any rent at the St. Ignatius College, which by the way, is part of a beautiful church. It is gorgeous. You would have your own room, you would have your own office. In other words, things would be free for you when you would get a salary. And you know, it, it might've been exciting, except by that time, I was all, also back in the United States dating a man who was to become my second husband. So I didn't take him up on it. But there have been many times when I wondered what living in Holland would have been like. So I don't really know. That's just one of those things you say, I wonder. You think about how we come to forks in the road and we have to make choices and you always wonder, well, what if I went left instead of right? Right. What career accomplishment are you most proud of? I'll have to step back a little back so you can understand. I'm talking to the time now when I, I was already known as a language teacher trainer, and I was asked to speak at a conference in Los Alamitos, California. After my talk, a woman came up to me, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, dressed slightly poorly because it was mainly a conference for foreign language teachers. And they loved to dress up for the conferences. This woman was not dressed up at all. But she said, by the way, my book was out now and it was translated into several languages. 
And she said, I think I can use your book to work with the deaf. And I looked at her in shock and I said, now, wait a minute. I don't know anything about how to teach deaf. My material is written for teachers who have students who speak and hear. And the teacher speaks and hears. So I don't know anything about how you would do it with a deaf. So I don't think you ought to get my book. Well, guess what? She didn't listen to me. She went ahead and got the book and came back and showed me she had the book. She said, I'm going to be teaching Spanish with a Spanish book to the children in Haiti because their first language is Spanish. But these children at the school that she taught at were the Christian school for the deaf. And these children, some of them were deaf since birth. They never even heard their first language. So she needed to use first language techniques because all the second language techniques, they just plain didn't work. And the Board of Education there would not give any money toward educating these kids. She started in with the emails because I said, well, look, at, just send the book back. And I, but the emails started coming in and she's saying, we are having wonderful results. So she says, will you please send me two more books? She kept saying such wonderful things. So I said to myself, and I said it out loud, actually on the phone, I said, well, I'd really like to see that. 20 minutes later, I get a telephone call from her and the director of the school. And they invited me to come down and see the school. And they invited me to stay. Director of the school invited me to stay at her home during the time I was there. And this country is the Dominican Republic, you know, right next to Haiti. I went down there and I, you know, I grew up in a poor neighborhood, but I'm here to tell you, I have never seen poverty like I saw there. They were, the children, actually, by the way, the school supported them. The school supported them by giving them uniforms so they had decent clothes to wear. And the school supported them by giving them a very hearty lunch, which they all ate. For some of them, it was the first meal and the last meal they had that day. And they mostly were in the homes of one parent, because usually when the fathers found out that the baby was deaf, they left. So the mother was left taking care of the child alone. Anyway, I went down to the school, and it was a heartening experience. I could see them using my technique, and the kids saw that the teacher was using a different book, and I was the lady that wrote that book. So they referred to me as Santa Berta. And I thought, wait a minute, just a minute. I think in order to be a saint, you have to be Catholic, and besides that, you have to be dead. <laughs> I'm not either of those. So the next evening, I told the director, I said, you know, I do need you to know that I'm, I'm Jewish, so I'm not really a saint. Just, well, the kids like you because they love this so much more than the early grammar exercises they had. In fact, they want to do it during recess. For them, it's a game. So they took me through the pre-kindergarten and then in separate classrooms into the high school level. And it was heartening. I couldn't understand because, you know, they're speaking with their hands and also lip reading. I mean, they were speaking their language. They could do that. It was just marvelous. And I took 600 photographs 
for the days that I was there. And only about 300 of them were good. I sent them all to the director of the school. She delivered them to the Board of Education because these children are proving that they are totally educable. They have the intelligence. It took two years. It really woke up the Board of Education. And of course, it would be terrible publicity if now they refused funds to the school. So they gave funds to the school and then put in money for the building of a new school because they were in an old old. At the end of the four or five days that I was there, they held a big party for me where all the kids from all the class came down and I, I posed there with the principal of the school and several of the kids wanted to have their photographs taken with me. The fact that a school was built for them and then they invited me through Zoom to see that they were now in the new school. And one of the kids gave a speech of welcoming. A lot of the politicians came now. So I felt that I had something to do with that. <laughs> That's really a wonderful testament to who you are, what you do, what you have done. If people could see you and know you, how animated and full of life, you make such a difference in people's lives and you have. So thank you for sharing that. Is there anything left on your bucket list now as you enter your non-Agerian decade? The big thing that I'm really looking forward to is the end of the coronavirus so that my children, I want to be able to see them. And when it becomes safe, they will come down, and I'm hoping you will come down, because those were our plans, that you would come for my 90th birthday. So that's going to be delayed now until the vaccine is, you know, proven real. In December, there's a good possibility it may be released, and then it'll be a matter of who do they distribute it to first. Yeah. Well, right. I think the healthcare workers will get it first, and they mm -hmm. deserve it, for heaven's sakes. They've done a a yeah. great service to yeah. us all. And then they're saying elderly, so probably non-Egerians. <laughs> so that'll be your birthday present. <laughs> they call people who make a fuss about being old or having or being fussy with being old that they're non-ageist. Oh, isn't that you interesting? Know, don't want to accept their I'm I'm willing to accept it. What the heck? I've made it, you know. Exactly. What else would you like others to know about you? Well, because I'm a sample of it. To the teachers who happen to be listening, I would ask, give that extra little attention to the kid who is from another ethnic group, who is from another color, who is from another socioeconomic class. Give them that extra chance and that extra encouragement because you might make the difference into how well they do in life. I really feel I lucked out. It was okay. I came at a bad time. I came into the United States. Depression time. And yet that kindergarten teacher was just a love. And all right, I did well, but she let us know that she was she used to say, oh, you make me so happy. She watched over me for the, all the eight years I was there. And I came after school every day. I was loyal to help her with whatever she needed because she was really uh, very, very good to me. So I say, give those kids the extra chance. Let's stop with whatever racism there is. We have nice words for it. We'll say it's an implicit bias. I mean, that's a very nice word 
for a small touch of racism or a small touch of just one particular group that you have some feelings about. Give them that extra chance. Treat them like you want your child treated. That's, that's an important thing. That was perfect, Bertie. That was so heartfelt. Well, thank you for asking. And I'm just tickled to be doing something together with you. Thank you for this. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome, honey. You're very welcome. Thank you for listening today. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to go to my Facebook page, Stories from A to Z with Mona P., to see photos of Birdie and the name of the professor she cites as instrumental to her work. If you are interested in sharing a bit of your life through this podcast, contact me to discuss the possibility. Remember, everyone has a story to tell. As always, I would appreciate your sharing this podcast with your friends and family. Click to follow me on SoundCloud and Instagram and Give me a thumbs up on the podcast page. The next episode will be available in two weeks, usually on a Monday. Till next time, this is Stories from A to Z with Mona P.